Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is the Out of the Park podcast series. We invite you to join us for other programming you can find on our website at www.framparkcenter.org. Join us. Welcome to the Fran Park Center for Faith and Life in Scottsdale, Arizona. This is our Out of the Park podcast series. We're bringing back a webinar from 2021, Can We Share the Future, with Drs. Wes Abram and Heath Carter. This is a two-part series. Coming up is part two. Enjoy. I love uh, this letter exchange. So, I mean, I, I love archival work. This is you kind of have to if you're a historian, right? Because you you have to you spend a lot of time in archives, and I love the detective work part of this. Um, so, I was in Rauschenbusch's papers, which are down in Atlanta, and uh, you know, just kind of going through all these correspondence. And I, I run around this, run across this letter that he got, um, or that he sent, excuse me, to William Bell Riley. William Bell Riley was one of the kind of leading conservative ministers of, of the early 20th century up in Minnesota. Rauschenbusch wrote him a letter because he learned that Riley at one of his revivals had been saying this sort of thing, that, um, you know, Rauschenbusch isn't really a Christian. Um, he's not really interested in what we think of as Christianity. Uh, he's interested in some other thing. It's another different kind of project. And, and Rauschenbusch got wind because a student of his had actually been at the, the revival meeting. You know, you be careful about what you say about people in public, I guess. Uh, so, you know, he gets wind of this and he writes Riley a long letter. And the whole point of the letter is, I am a deeply devout Christian. I believe in Jesus Christ. I come at these questions and I see that, and what he would argue in the letter, and went on to argue in the letter is not that um, in seeking to kind of get the church engaged in the social world. He didn't see that as a secularizing move. He saw that as a re-sacralizing move. Mm. That in some sense, when the church decided at some point along the way, or at least when institutional kind of leaders of the churches decided that, you know, the church isn't going to say anything about this issue. The church isn't going to say anything about that issue. These are, these are somehow, these are separate from religious concerns. They're public matters and, and religion's a private matter. That in some sense, what, what they were doing was seeding vast swaths of human life to secularity as such. You know, I mean, that, that, that term's complicated in my field, but uh, for the purposes of the conversation, you know, that, that in some sense, what Rauschenbusch saw himself as doing is elevating the gospel to say the gospel is actually about all of life, not just about your personal spiritual life, but it's about everything. How you spend your money, where you live, how you vote, all these things are under, you know, the rubric of, of the gospel. So I think that's what, I mean, and and I think there's something to that idea. We could talk about kind of what some of the unintended consequences of these sorts of things might be, but certainly, certainly he didn't see it in any way as a kind of move away from uh, Christianity. I mean, if you can't read Rashford, he wrote this beautiful book of prayers. And I mean, one of the things, if you start to get to know him um, in the ways that you can get to know someone who's, who's passed away is he had a deep personal piety. He loved Jesus. I mean, you just read his letters, you read his stuff and um, he was uh, alive in Christ. The way the pietists would say, uh, yeah, he, he really deeply believed. Um, so yeah, as I said, lots to say about unintended consequences, but certainly that was, that was how they saw it. You, you just begged the next question in some yeah. ways, um, yeah. by, in terms of unintended consequences. Yeah. And what happened to this movement? Yeah. 
yeah. as the as the 20th century uh, moved on into the yeah. and even into the 21st. Well, so I think here's a couple of things, right? So the way I think about this, um, in my field, the social gospel is one of the oldest kind of topics you could write about. Um, and it was really first written about while it was still in its sort of heyday. Um, and the way that people thought about it was as a theological movement. It was a movement of pastors and seminary professors who had discovered in the early 20th century that the gospel had social meaning. The way I think about it and, and um, the way I'm writing about it in this book is this is a movement that really comes out of the experiences of poor people. It comes out of the experiences of people on the margins who didn't write systematic theologies, but they had profoundly theological intuitions and they really believed God was with them in their daily struggle. So part of the story that I want to tell is the story of how did that experience and those intuitions, which started among the people, how'd those get into the churches? And I think that starts to happen by the early 20th century for a variety of reasons. Now, what we also know is by the, the 1930s, let me back up. In the first decade of the 20th century, you get the social creed and these kind of social teachings. Um, earlier in the Catholic Church, Rerum Novarum in 1891, a kind of body of social teaching emerges out of the institutional church starting in the early 20th century. Alongside that, in really rapid succession, you get the emergence of all of these new kinds of um, institutions, committees, everything from like big interdenominational things like the Federal Council of Churches and the National Catholic Welfare Conference, and to some extent the NAACP. Um, but you also get uh, every denomination has a committee on social action, a committee on social justice, et cetera, et cetera, or committees on race, committees on labor, um, and, and eventually lots of those start to work together. So when the New Deal comes around, um, and I think this is very interesting, and, and, and you know, the New Deal, many of the folks who were who involved in kind of the emergence of the New Deal program, they see it. Again, we can talk about unintended consequences. We can talk about different views on it. They see it, and they're advertising it as this is the Sermon on the Mount come to life in our midst. That's what Harold Ickes says when he goes to talk to the Presbyterians in their General Assembly meeting in the early 1930s. He says, this is what Christ was calling. This is what he was talking about. Loving your neighbor, looking out for the poor, looking out, you know, being your, your brother or your sister's keeper. This is the thing. Now, what we know, and this kind of starts to get to, you know, what's, what, what happened, right? Many things happen. <laughs> Two big ones. Uh, one would be there are folks who are never on board with that view, right? And, and we know that already in the 1930s, um, you start to have kind of partnerships between, um, in the business world and um, different church worlds of folks who are organizing against this sort of organization. So they're organizing against um, the, the different social action bodies within the denominations. They're organizing against the federal council of churches, entire denominations, the Southern Presbyterians pull out of the federal council of churches, like every other week, they're out and in and out and in and, and threatening to be out and threatening to be in partly because they think that the, the federal council of churches might be endorsing social equality. Federal Council of Churches actually isn't super progressive on uh, racial equality in the first half of the 20th century. So their general secretary is writing letters back and saying, no, 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 you don't. You know, we believe that our, our black brothers and sisters, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we don't, we're not endorsing social equality, da, 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 right? So there's this kind of political fight that starts to erupt in and around these institutions. And very quickly, they get gummed up. So these denominational bodies, the federal council, are just 
overwhelmed, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of letters coming in, um, accusing them of, of leaving true Christianity behind. At the same time, the New Deal itself was upsetting the apple cart of Jim Crow in the South and around the country. And folks who had been really excited about New Deal programs in the early 1930s, and this is a great book, No Depression in Heaven, which looks at the kind of story of, of the New Deal in churches around uh, the Mississippi Delta region, this deeply poor region in the 1930s, where initially churches were saying, hey, um, we got this. We don't need any federal help. We don't need, you know, during the Great Depression. Eventually, uh, they didn't have it. And there was just mass destitution across the Mississippi Delta region. And they reach out to FDR and they reach out and they welcome these New Deal programs. Back in 1935, FDR sends out a letter to every pastor in America and asks what their opinion is about uh, the Social Security Act and, and other pieces of major New Deal legislation. And people love it. Pastors love it. And so my friend Allison Green wrote this book, No Depression in Heaven, and she starts the book by saying, we have this memory of, of the Great Depression, the greatest generation, as this generation that didn't need any help. But the reality is that these churches in the, one of the poorest regions in the country in this moment of great need, needed help. But what we know is that, I mean, that, that memory, which, you know, this is, this is getting into complicated material. We can sort of get into some of this, and I'm happy to take pushback and talk more about it. Part of what happens is by the, the late 1940s, it was very clear to folks around the country that the New Deal had empowered organized labor. Organized labor was interracial in a way that it hadn't been since the 1880s when the Knights of Labor were organizing black and white workers. The CIO had come on the scene in 1935 and was organizing black and white workers. And as, as the CIO in the wake of World War II starts to try to organize in the South, launches this huge Operation Dixie to organize workers across the South, people quickly realize, oh, labor has a lot of power and labor is interracial. And Jim Crow is going to come crumbling down. And so you start to have by the, the you know, mid 20th century, major misgivings emerging about any kind of federal program that would either intentionally or unintentionally destabilize the country's racial regime. Uh, and, and that's a, so those two things, I would say, one, a kind of partnerships emerging between business and churches around kind of trying to promote, very intentionally promote what historians call a gospel of free enterprise, mm -hmm. a kind of alternative to the social Christianity that I've been talking about. You get the emergence of this kind of vision of a gospel of free enterprise. That's part one. But part two is a lot about the mid 20th century as the point when campaigns for equality start to also be about racial equality in a very serious way, a, a way that really threatens the racial order. And um, a lot of white Christians were not, they weren't here for that. And, and they back off very quickly. And um, again, we can, we can talk more about why that is and, and whatnot. My, you know, one of my colleagues wrote a book called The Stone of Hope, where he argues that the reason the civil rights movement succeeded was because of its prophetic um, engagement with this kind of prophetic tradition in the Hebrew Bible, King's ability to draw on a very serious strain of Christian faith. I think he's right about that in part. But um, one of the other arguments in the book is that segregationism failed 
because it didn't have a, a kind of strong basis or strong root in Christianity in the same way. And I think my colleagues, uh, since that book came out, have really resoundingly disproved that part of, of David Chappelle's book and shown a great book, uh, Mississippi Praying, shows how deeply segregationists believed that God had ordained segregation and God opposed, God was entirely arrayed against integration, civil rights, etc. And the reality that we know, and, and again, how we talk more about this, is that white people did not, on the whole, participate in the civil rights movement, with some exceptions. But that, that's the big story, and then there are some exceptions to that big story. So when we think about equality, where did a tradition that was centered on this virtue of equality saw Christianity as kind of a force for equality in society? Where did it go? Partly it was, it fell kind of asunder on the rocks of racism in, in the mid 20th century. And that's one of the hard truths that I think, you know, for a white Christian like myself, it's, it's important to grapple with. It's a serious, serious issue. And, it's, and it reflects back on these social gospelers too, many of whom, like Rashmush had said, didn't build movements that were interracial. How was it then that w- was there, yeah. I want to presume, was there a transformation in the 70s and into the 80s? when some of the rhetoric or language of the social gospel, not the policies, mm-hmm. but the language and piety of it was actually taken up into a whole different set of churches, a different set of politics around abortion and uh, free enterprise and, and yeah. uh, certain issues about foreign policy and the like. And suddenly you have yeah. the moral majority and other groups who seem to take up this mantle for very different causes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think the emergence of that tradition, um, which was profoundly influential in the last uh, since the 1960s, right? Um, you know, and that that's why when we started this conversation, I said, you know, this is a tradition. It's easy to forget about social Christianity. It's easy to forget about social gospels and the ways that they deeply shape the country. It's because this other tradition emerges that, in some ways, uh, has a similar vision. You might, you know, I don't think at this point that they were talking necessarily about Christianizing the social order, but they do have a similar kind of vision of uh, bringing, the, bringing the country back to God, uh, making, making America Christian again in a serious way. Um, and, and part of what my colleagues have done a beautiful job of in the last 20 years is really trying to get at where did that come from? And it turns out it came from uh, just like the social Christian tradition that I'm writing about came out of a generation of organizing, and then you get kind of uh, results in the early 20th century, um, you have a tradition of organizing in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s um, that that sort of starts in response to a variety of different phenomenon, everything from uh, New Deal programs and backlash against them. Historians talk about the 1950s and 1960s as an age of urban guerrilla warfare, as um, urban neighborhoods are becoming integrated and um, frankly, there was just unending battles over turf in these neighborhoods because white, white Christians could not imagine black people as their neighbors. And, and so um, those movements, and you, if you ever watched uh, the Eyes on the Prize documentary, um, if you haven't seen it, you got to watch it. It's phenomenal. It's, it's one of, it's, I still think it's the best documentary about the civil rights movement. Um, it's so phenomenal because it has so much original footage, and then it has, it has all these interviews with activists from the time. And so we think about, sometimes we think about the civil rights movement as something that happened in Alabama and Georgia and whatnot. Watch the episodes in Eyes on the Prize that are on Chicago and on Boston, where you had violent 
anti-black riots, when people talked about school busing, when people talked about integration of neighborhoods. Um, so if you've got a, a kind of opposition to New Deal programs, you've got people organizing around neighborhoods, neighborhood associations start to bubble up all over the country as ways of defending neighborhoods against um, black residential mobility, essentially. Um, later, uh, in, the, in the 70s, you start to get a lot of interest in the, uh, the issue of abortion, which was not an issue that uh, evangelical Christians had really been super activated around before that. Catholics had been. Um, and to some extent, some uh, kind of social gospel folks had been actually pretty worried about abortion um, in the mid-20th century. Um, but you have kind of a, a, a sort of surge in interest in, in abortion also, ongoing kind of issues, right? I mean, we know that uh, questions around school busing and whatnot were well into the 70s and the 80s. So all of these things are coming together. So I think part of what we, we, we when we think about kind of uh, this, this gospel free enterprise or this tradition that emerges in the, in the latter half of the 20th century, it has, you can know, think about it as sort of different streams that come together. Um, one of the most important streams actually was neither um, folks who were, thinking especially seriously about New Deal programs, nor were they thinking about uh, segregation. It was folks who had um, maybe were the children or the grandchildren of immigrants who had grown, who kind of come of age in the cities. They, these folks had grown up in the suburbs. So they didn't have any experiences in this urban guerrilla warfare stuff. They grew up in the suburbs. And for a lot of these folks, they thought of themselves and kind of one of the better books about them is called The Silent Majority after what Richard Nixon talked about. Uh, in the late 1960s, um, the silent majority thought of itself as, you know, I, I'm not going to march for civil rights, but I'm not going to march against civil rights. I'm kind of in between. I'm kind of like happy about I see. I think we're making some progress. I think that's where we're going. Um, I certainly don't think and this is one of the keys for this this kind of big demographic that emerges in kind of a suburbanizing United States in this period. And one of the, one of the big wellsprings of this latter uh, tradition, you know, they, they they come from the suburbs. Many of their parents had really benefited from the GI Bill. Many of them have benefited from New Deal programs. Um, there's not a great memory of that. So the memory is my family worked hard to get where we are. What we know, right, historians would say there is no greater engine of the middle class, the post-war middle class, than the GI Bill. It sent a whole generation of vets uh, to college, sent a whole, uh, helped a whole generation of vets to buy um, buy homes kind of on a, on a federally subsidized mortgage. Um, we also know that the GI Bill was a huge engine of racial inequality because black people couldn't take advantage of either of those provisions. You couldn't, you couldn't get into a white college if you were black in 1950. And because of redlining, which is a thing that we could get into if people want to know more about it, you couldn't buy a house in, in most parts of the country. So uh, the silent majority, not remembering necessarily all this stuff, has this narrative that um, we worked hard. We got there. Now the federal government wants to come around and and give people handouts. And um, and I don't believe in that. And so there's this kind of huge uh, surge in that kind of um, that kind of world. And that becomes one of the big engines. So those are not folks who are like George Wallace segregation today, segregation, tomorrow, segregation forever, nor are they uh, super involved in the organizing against New Deal programs, but they're just folks who have a certain set of intuitions, which are so different, interestingly, than the intuitions of these social Christian folks that I'm talking about, though everybody has the intuition that in some sense we need the country to be more Christian. It just looks very different. 
Thank you for joining us at our Out of the Park podcast series on Can We Share the Future with Drs. Wes Abram and Heath Carter. Check out our website at www.bramparkcenter.org for more information.